Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshin Kamel, and you're listening to Legalese. This episode on achieving criminal justice, police use of force reform, will be introduced by my guest co-host today, ASU Law Professor Valina Beatty. Valina, I'll be handing this over to you now. Thanks, Amina. Uh, I'm Valina Beatty. I'm a law professor at Arizona State University Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law and Deputy Director of the Academy for Justice. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at ASU Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and share expert voices. And we're delighted to have the experts we have today joining us. So today on this podcast episode, we're going to hear from leaders in reforming accountability for police who use excessive or deadly force against civilians. They have proposed or supported statutory reforms to be joined today by Professor Cynthia Lee at the George Washington University Law School, Professor Catherine Smith at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law, and Professor Frank Rudy Cooper at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law, where he directs the program on race, gender, and policing. You can find their full biographies on legalesepodcast.com. So uh, a question for everyone to start Uh, In the past few weeks, while Derek Chauvin was on trial for killing George Floyd, police continued to kill American civilians. The most attention has been given to the police killing of Dante Wright in Minnesota, a black man, uh, the police killing of 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago, uh, who was a Latino boy. And immediately after the verdict, the police killing of 16-year-old a Black girl in Columbus, Ohio. Given the ongoing violence by police, particularly against communities of color, why do you believe in reforming police accountability rather than abolishing the police? If we could start with Frank. So I have to say that I actually support abolition of the police but in the sense that Amna Akbar has talked about as an abolitionist horizon. So uh, I think that as long as the country is gun crazy, which seems to be for a long time going forward, that we may need things like SWAT teams and that kind of thing. But what I'm really in favor of is police diversion. And by that, I mean diverting the police away from certain topics and diverting funds with that move uh, towards handling other topics through social services. So specifically, I'm thinking of when it comes to mental health, a lot of police, uh, certainly here in Nevada and elsewhere, would say 
they're not experts in dealing with people who are having mental breaks. Um, and uh, when they come to those situations, they basically have one tool, right? And it's their gun or their taser. And they don't really want that responsibility. So one way to think of this is some things that have been experimented with is diverting so that you either just send social services personnel to a call on mental health issues, or you send a team that has a police officer of the traditional sort and then a social worker who actually knows how to uh, handle that situation. Uh, another thing I think of is uh, homelessness. That's a good way to divert the police away from doing something that in some cities they do a lot of, which is just dealing with people who are houseless. And again, they're not experts in that. We ought to instead refer those types of situations to social workers who have access to wraparound services. So I have more to say on this. So when it comes to abolition versus uh, reform, I would uh, support an abolitionist horizon, then diverting the police away from some of the things they do. But that's not to say that I'm against reform. I do think that we have to be sort of strategically progressive about how we change the police. And so I have been with the program on race, gender, and policing, trying to work with legislators in Nevada to get them to pass reforms that would be helpful, uh, even as... I would like to keep pushing them to go further and further. So I think that's all I have to say about that topic. Cynthia, what are your thoughts on that? I really believe that people can change their behavior with the right incentives and that the law is an important vehicle that can be used to encourage changes in behavior and social norms. So an example of how the law or how law can change social norms can be seen in our nation's history of rape laws. Previously, in order to secure a rape conviction, the prosecutor had to prove that the victim resisted to her utmost. And this was called the resistance requirement. And it was a really difficult evidentiary standard because often the victim would have no evidence of resistance, no bruises, no scratches, no torn clothing, even if she had struggled, even if she tried to push, push her rapist away, even if she'd said no. Another requirement that made it challenging to convict in rape cases was the corroboration requirement. And prosecutors had to present evidence corroborating the fact that a rape took place. And since most rapes um, don't take place in front of witnesses, this made securing a rape conviction almost impossible. And then in the 1970s and 1980s, feminists pushed for reform of rape laws. And they eventually succeeded in getting states to get rid of the resistance requirement and the corroboration requirement. And as a result of these changes in the law concerning rape, social norms about what constitutes appropriate dating behavior also changed. I think actually the feminist reform back in the 1970s and 1980s, the feminist reform of rape law, paved the way to the Me Too movement of today. And I think we're gonna see a similar change in police behavior with the reform of laws governing police use of force. Thank you, Cynthia. Uh, and Catherine, do you have any thoughts? So just briefly, I, I think that 
any large scale problems in our society, I think the approach to resolving them is multifaceted. And I, I, I really, I mean, I, I love the frame that Frank offered from Professor uh, Akbar, but I, I also feel like uh, a multifaceted approach uh, in the different ways we can get at a problem and try and resolve it. Uh, not one size fits all necessarily. Uh, it's going to be different for different cities, different regions of the country, different contexts. And uh, and I also feel like out of sort of necessity, particularly some of the, the topics I'll be talking about, the duty to intervene law, it's going to be necessary, whether it's incremental uh, on, on, on the path to abolition or if, uh, and it can happen at the same time as abolition as well. And I think it's a concept that would, that would be uh, relevant even in an abolition framework. So thanks. Thank you. So you each have proposed powerful reforms for police accountability for use of force. Professor Lee, you have proposed reforming the standard by which a police officer is held accountable for killing a civilian in civil cases. And your proposal has now been adopted as law in Virginia, Connecticut, and D.C. Can you explain your new standard to us? Certainly. Oh, and first of all, my model statute was actually aimed at the standard for holding police accountable in criminal prosecutions. Before, not, before 2020, the vast majority of state use of force statutes provided that a, a police officer's use of force, a police officer's use of deadly force was justified as long as the officer reasonably believed that his use of force was necessary. In other words, the focus was solely on the officer's beliefs and not the officer's actions. In contrast, the use of deadly force statutes that were passed in Virginia, Connecticut, and the District of Columbia last year, which borrow heavily from my model statute, require that both the officer's beliefs and actions must be reasonable, and that an officer must exhaust all reasonably available options before using deadly force. In addition, all three states now require the jury to consider whether the officer engaged in de-escalation measures prior to using deadly force. And they also require the jury to consider whether any conduct of the officer increased the risk of a deadly confrontation. No other use of force statute prior to 2020 included such specific guidance to the jury. And in fact, in the, in the courts, there's a split of opinion about whether or not juries, it is appropriate for juries to consider what's called pre-seizure or antecedent conduct of the officer that increased the risk of a deadly confrontation. So about half the states, half the federal courts allow, half the federal courts do not allow. But um, the legislation in these three jurisdictions make clear that the jury not only may consider uh, whether the officer's conduct prior to the use of deadly force increased the risk of a deadly confrontation, they mandate that the jury consider this. Professor Lee, do you anticipate other states moving in this direction? It's incredible that no other states had this component just a year ago. I hope so. Uh, that would be terrific if they did. I have received uh, inquiries from people involved in moving the ball in other states. Uh, so my hope is that other states will adopt this legislation. 
Great. And it's amazing that you created this model statute uh, in one of your law review articles. Thank you. Yes, I did the research, most of the research for this piece back in 2016 and 2017. And uh, the article was published in 2018. Thank you for uh, letting me talk about it here. Yeah, and we'll make sure to share a link with listeners to that law review article as well. Uh, And Professors Lee and Cooper, you have both written on the importance of explicitly acknowledging the role of race in police violence. Uh, And Professor Lee, you've written on the danger of ignoring race, uh, particularly in the case against George Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon Martin in Florida. Indeed, the prosecutor in that case explicitly told the jury, quote, this is not about race. This is about right and wrong, end quote. So for both of you, why must we identify and acknowledge the role of race in deadly police violence? And if I could hear from you first, Professor Lee. Sure. Um, Well, Black men are two and a half times more likely to be killed over their lifetime by police over their lifetime than white men. And I think we really need to acknowledge the role of race in police killing cases um, when the victim is black or brown, because race is often a factor in the perception of threat. So there's decades of social science research demonstrating that all of us, police officers included, tend to associate blacks and particularly black men with criminality and violence. And when an officer sees a black man, that officer might may either consciously or subconsciously be more fearful of the individual because of the uh, because of these deeply ingrained associations uh, between blacks and criminality. Another reason why I think it's important to identify and acknowledge the role of race in police cases is because of something called threat perception failure, which occurs when an officer thinks a person has a gun or an, or other deadly weapon, but it turns out the person was actually unarmed. Social science research shows that threat perception failure occurs more often when an officer is confronting a black person than when an officer confronts a white person. Thank you. Uh, Professor Cooper. So I find this really interesting because there's a well-documented history of policing as having been about the social control of racially disfavored groups. And by that, we mean historically Black folks. And that continues to play out today. And the way I see simply sort of the steps towards today is as follows. First, we had slave patrols, And then we had informal and formal policing of black codes. And all of that begat formal policing, which has, since its inception, focused on racial profiling. Sometimes it was more ethnic profiling in some areas, but it was was always also racially focused. And today we have these sort of wars on crime, this sort of endless wars on drugs and wars on crime. And I see those as a primary way that we are dealing with the precariat. And Lowick Wacomp, the sociologist, talks about the precariat as people who are in a precarious position economically. Uh, 
And the reason they're in a precarious position is because neoliberalism has created a situation where we've taken away the sort of low uh, education uh, but middle-class jobs. So we stripped away sort of the usual hard industries that helped uh, to bring those people up into the middle class. And then at the same time, we've given more privileges to the rich. So we've said that there has to be a deregulation of business and sort of let them do as they wish, as in the Gilded Age of the uh, late 1800s. And at the same time, we've ramped up the sense that individuals are responsible for their own selves. And if they aren't succeeding, it's their fault. So when we think about this precariat, what we've got today is uh, a business environment that doesn't need a certain group of people who don't fit in with the new economy. And then with business people not needing that group of people, we've ramped up at the same time both workfare so that if you want welfare, you have to actually work in these low-wage, low-security jobs. And most importantly, we've ramped up mass incarceration or hyper-incarceration. So one of the things that I see today is that uh, crime is how we manage the precariat. And that response, uh, that management is a response to the civil rights movement. So as we moved out of the civil rights movement, we gave more rights to uh, black folks, to brown folks, to Asian Americans, uh, to Latinx. Uh, but at the same time, we said that we're going to start these wars on drugs and wars on crime, which were targeting them. So I say all of that to say this. The police today are the primary means by which we discipline this precariat population. And policing today focuses on pretextual policing. So the new policing, as it's called, is this aggressive form of policing. And they look for things like that you had a an air freshener hanging from your rear view mirror. And if police couldn't stop people for pretextual reasons like that, for reasons that aren't a legitimate reason for stopping somebody, that in fact, they want to search the person for drugs, but they say, oh, they've got an air freshener hanging from their rear view mirror. If the police couldn't do that, Dante Wright would be alive today because that's why he was stopped. And that stop led to the confrontation that led to his death. So I see races running through all of this. And I think one of the big projects that we should all be involved in and that I'm certainly involved in is trying to end pretextual policing because it's really just about racial profiling. What a powerful point about Dante Wright. Uh, and it's something uh, I think we all try to remind our students that there are far more lawbreakers than people we choose to identify as criminals and choose to stop and arrest and even prosecute. And I think the air freshener is a, is a great point on that. And it, it yeah. thank you very much for sharing that with us. And I would add to Professor Cooper's list of the ways in which that happens is the school to prison pipeline too, where law enforcement, uh, it's not just in the streets, it's now in schools, it has been. And, and that's another place, and it, it intersects with, with the, the work I'm interested in about how kids, children, not just children that are shot and killed by the police in the streets for having an, an air freshener, but also 
in addition, kids in schools and that we're taking that same approach in schools for infractions and moving those kids into the uh, carceral state. So, Right. And both this idea that um, offenses, if we want to call it, uh, that normally would be or should be handled within the school are now handled within the juvenile criminal justice system. Um, but also that uh, behavior by um, children of color, black and brown children, uh, are more likely to be seen as deviant or as criminal behavior. And for example, black girls being seen more as uh, disruptive or acting in a way that should be punished. So I think there's a lot of components to that. Thank you for bringing that up, Professor Smith. So Professor Cooper, if I can return to you, um, you've recently written on support for Blue Lives Matter uh, and you've coined the term cop fragility. Uh, in comparison to white fragility, cop fragility is oversensitivity to criticism, blocking necessary conversations on race and policing, and even going so far as to advocate for assaults on police to be punished as hate crimes. How do you see this Blue Lives Matter perspective blocking reform, uh, including those proposed in your home state of Nevada. And if I've inappropriately described your concept of cop fragility, or if you'd like to share more about that, please do. So thank you, Valina. The, I think the conversation that we were just having about pretextual stops is helpful to think about here. Police love having the tool that they can stop somebody for having a brake light that has a leaf that's blown in front of it and therefore is obscuring the light or for, you know, driving at an unreasonable speed, for turning without using a turn signal, and of course for being able to stop somebody uh, who has an air freshener in their mirror. They love the privilege of having that. And I've had conversations with students who are police officers, and the way they explain that usually is to say, well, you know, the way we can stop a bad guy is by using one of these pretextual bases, and then we can catch him with the drugs or the whatever. A lot of people know the output or hit rate on pretextual stops at best is like 2%. And then if you, and that's if you kind of treat it in a generous manner. So right now what this serves as pretextual stops is as a privilege for the police to have just this extra tool that doesn't really make sense, right? I mean, a lot of these offenses should be decriminalized or shouldn't be the basis for a stop under the law. But then under criminal procedure law, the Supreme Court has said, well, if there's any kind of minuscule, crazy law out there in the code, you can enforce that reason notwithstanding. And I would say reasonableness notwithstanding, despite the language of the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. So where Blue Lives Matter comes in here is that Blue Lives Matter makes police and their supporters unwilling to sacrifice or give away any police privileges. And pretextual policing is one of these tools that the police have that they will not give up now. In Nevada in particular, what I've seen, unfortunately, is that a large portion of the legislators are prosecutors. And we know that prosecutors rely on the police. 
right? When they're out there uh, prosecuting, you know, everything, every little silly thing to the hilt, they need the police officer to get on the stand and support them. And the police, of course, bring them their cases. So prosecutors are aligned with the police. Now, why that matters in our legislature and other legislatures is that legislators tend to bow to pressure from the prosecutors and from the police and not want to bring major police reforms, particularly not want to take away any of the privileges of the police. And this spans from union negotiated privileges to uh, law enforcement bills of rights to uh, pretextual policing privileges. And in Nevada right now, we've got a Democratic controlled Senate and a Democratic controlled uh, House Assembly and yet we can't get major police reform through. They feel like they ought to be able to judge themselves. And if you criticize them, they will resist that criticism. Just like uh, Robin D'Angelo's theory of white fragility, they will not hear any possibility that they could be racist. Thank you. Uh, and we're uh, fortunate to be able to um, also speak with Professor Smith today. Together with Professor Cooper and Professor Suzette Malvo, um, you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post last summer that went viral. Uh, your op-ed recognized the blue wall of silence uh, and encouraged state laws that create an affirmative duty for bystander police to intervene and prevent use of excessive force. Uh, soon after, your home state of Colorado passed legislation creating bystander accountability. Uh, why is bystander accountability important for police and policing? And have you seen it raised in other state legislatures? So first, I want to say thank you for having me uh, on the podcast. And uh, it's really a pleasure to be here with Professor Cooper and Professor Lee. To your question about the Colorado um, Enhanced Law Enforcement Integrity Act. Serious kudos to the state legislators and uh, lawyers who worked on that law, uh, especially uh, an attorney, local attorney, Mari Newman, and uh, legislator, House of Representatives, uh, Leslie Herod. They initiated and passed the Colorado, Colorado's Enhanced Law Enforcement and Integrity Act. We think it's the, uh, I think it was the first in the nation it was actually passed during the protests of police violence, including the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and 23-year-old Elijah McClain uh, in Denver, Colorado. The provisions in that law included some of what uh, Professor Lee talked about, limits on the use of deadly force, uh, data collection requirements, the abolition of qualified immunity in state court body camera requirements, and abolishing the use of uh, chokeholds by uh, police. And it also had a provision, a duty to intervene provision, which was a, a bystander, a requirement that police uh, who are bystanders who witness violations, police brutality or excessive use of excessive force or constitutional violations by their fellow police officers, they have an obligation to intervene. So that was the focus of our op-ed. We really felt like uh, this bystander, we really wanted to sort of project this and, and give it a greater uh, voice, knowing that that was taking place in the Colorado law. And so we really felt like the, it was important to talk about why a duty to intervene is so significant. Um, if we think back to 
the uh, this you know the trial of of, of Derek Chauvin, uh, the world witnessed ho- the horror of seeing uh, this convicted murderer kill George Floyd, and the pain of the bystanders who tried to convince him to stop. Uh, the question we all ask, or hopefully people were asking, is, well, why didn't fellow officers do something? A law that requires them to do something or subjects them to liability might help after we have had all experienced that trauma and seeing that and experiencing it, and for, particularly for the people close in. So first and foremost, a duty to intervene law might save the lives of citizens, uh, mostly black and brown people being killed and maimed by the police. Second, the police are the, are, are, are the only people in the situation who can actually intervene, as we saw during the, during the trial and the, with the witnesses pleading, but they certainly wouldn't be safe for them to run in and try and stop uh, what was happening. And this notion of requiring a duty to intervene can also break, be a tool to break down the uh, blue wall of silence. And, uh, and it can include, like the Colorado law, anti-retaliation provisions uh, to protect officers who do take a stand. So we, we feel like we felt like in our op-ed and, and still feel like it's really uh, might be an important provision to provide. Uh, and there are a couple other uh, reasons in our op-ed uh, that we mentioned, but I, I do want to, in the interest of time, talk about uh, from a bird's eye view. And I'm going to talk about from civil liability perspective, not criminal liability, but civil liability. As a torts professor, I want to talk about this, uh, the role of tort law or personal injury law uh, for all the tort, tort geeks out there. Duty, this notion of duty in negligence law is defined as the legal obligation to conform one's conduct to a particular standard of care. And not only do courts decide when there's a duty, a legal obligation to act to protect someone else from harm, so do legislators. So legislators can determine that. They have the power to pass a law like the Colorado legislature to say, hey, if you're a police officer witnessing this and you know it's a violation of the law, you must intervene. You must stop it. And from a tort law perspective, when duties exist in the law, they tell us as a society what we care about. It's that simple. And I'm just going to give a couple of examples where we have required a duty to intervene. Psychiatrists have an affirmative duty to act to warn foreseeable victims of a threat of harm from a patient. That was not always the law. Courts determined that such a duty should exist because of victims of violence that could have been prevented by professionals trained to help and prevent it matter, right? Commercial alcohol vendors is another example. They owe an affirmative duty to protect third parties on our highways uh, from intoxicated patrons. That was not always the law. Uh, Victims of drunk drivers matter. And so tort law is really a powerful area, an area of civil law that can be used to help hold bystander cops civilly liable for their failure to intervene to stop civil rights deprivations or police brutality. And tort law can shout to the rooftops to this society that black and brown lives matter. And so it's a long-winded answer, but, uh, but I think it's really important. I think Colorado is one of the few states that's that's passed an affirmative duty to act on behalf of bystander cops. I think 
perhaps some of the other states, maybe Connecticut, I think, has a provision. I'm not. I know that they had a provision passed shortly after uh, the Colorado law. Perhaps uh, Professor Lee and Cooper know of some other states, but uh, I think it's a, a conversation we should continue to have. So I guess I wanted to just uh, follow up on what Professor Smith was saying. To my mind, this whole point about creating a duty, right, and liability around it is so important to fight an entrenched culture that doesn't care. And so the examples that Professor Smith gave are examples where people just figured like, oh, well, you know, every uh, prom season, you know, five local kids get killed by drunk drivers or five local people get killed by drunk drivers. That's just the way it is. And we can change that with a duty and with liability. And here in the policing context, the important thing from my point of view is the blue wall of silence, right? That is the core of the police culture. And that blue wall of silence says, don't tell on your fellow officer, no matter what. And so having not just a duty to intervene for police officers, but also anti-retaliation provisions, I think is really important to change the whole culture. So when we started off talking about sort of, you know, what is a big vision for what policing might become, certainly one of the things I hope that will include is a breakdown of the blue wall of silence. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, us lawyers, we have we have that responsibility. We we must report when a lawyer is gone amiss, a fellow lawyer is gone amiss, even if it's our best friend. So it's not, it's not so much to ask that I think of, of any profession that that's the first thing that came to mind. I'm like, we have a duty to report on each other. So that leads to my next question for professor Smith. So professor Smith, although many of us are familiar with civil rights claims under section 1983, part of the civil rights act of 1871, most people, myself included, may be unfamiliar with claims under Section 1986 of that same act. Could you please explain how Section 1986 claim would apply to police use of excessive force today? The 1871 Act, uh, which included Section 1983, our current version of Section 1983, was a comprehensive legislation to eradicate racial and political violence against um, Blacks who were being terrorized um, and Republicans after the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments. The government and law enforcement were heavily involved in Klan violence, uh, while others would tacitly agree to stand down or not intervene to stop it. The 1871 Act included a number of provisions, conspiratorial provisions, and one of them was Section 1985-3, which is really the main conspiratorial provision. It prohibited conspiracies to deprive, quote, any person or class of persons of the equal protection of the laws or of equal privileges and immunities under the laws. Well, a companion provision that was passed with Section 1983, this conspiracy provision, uh, was Section 1986, which was to get at the people who didn't intervene, who who failed to act. They might have been a, had knowledge about the conspiracy or Klan violence or violence um, uh, against uh, uh, Blacks and and uh, Republicans during this time period, and their failure to act under under Section 1986 would subject them to to liability. Our op-ed and our idea was to say, you know, we should remember this history. And it's teaching us really important lessons. This is the, the the discussions we're having right now are not new discussions. They're not new, and our country has has 
provided laws that that get at this because there's been a lot of thought about it because of that history. And so I we thought, well, let's talk about that history, but decouple it from the act itself, because what happened to the 1871 act is that it is really gutted uh, by the reconstru- uh, post-Reconstruction, by the uh, pretty much hostile Supreme Court, and has not today been had new life really uh, breathed into it in a lot of ways. Very difficult to be successful under Section 1983, right? Much less 1985-3 and Section 1986. But the ideas are still relevant. And so this, this idea of learning like, hey, well, there's an affirmative duty in this federal provision that had this history to it, uh, and is teaching us all of these lessons, we can also take those lessons and understand that we can go straight to the legislature and say, hey, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be that federal provision. You could actually learn lessons from that and enact, pass an affirmative duty to, to act law in state law. And so it really t- is an interesting way to think about both federal law and state law and the ways that we could be more forward thinking. And Colorado is more forward thinking in some ways for the country by learning those lessons and saying, you know, we can just embed a law into state law, an affirmative duty to act, to intervene, even if the federal law has not quite caught up yet. And that was true for the qualified immunity uh, abolition as well. Um, and so we can be leaders in, in this, in our state legislatures for uh, for making change. And I think that's what, that's what Colorado did. Follow-up question on that, actually. How long do you think it'll take for others to follow suit on what Colorado did? You know, it's, I, I think uh, perhaps professors uh, Lee and Cooper might have more insight on this. Um, I think it's, it's uh, you don't really know. Uh, you would hope that I think other, and I assume other legislatures are paying attention. And this is the hard part of, about a lot of this is, is it takes time for us to do some of this, you know, all of us to educate and to, talk about this and to think about maybe different ways to do that educating and deal with the cop fragility and the uh, messaging that we have around these issues. I mean, just think about the the drunk driving scenario and the laws that were enacted there. It was a really targeted campaign by uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? So I think the protests have had a huge influence. I think they will continue to have an influence and uh, hopefully not consistently because of more deaths, responding to more deaths. But I think we have to definitely stay vigilant and keep talking about it and um, and uh, pushing. Thank you, Professor Smith. I'm not sure. Thank you. Oh, Professor Cooper, I think you want to jump in on this one. <laughs> yes, thank you. So, <laughs> you know, I taught con law for a while and I would have to teach this argument that I don't really agree with. And that argument is the idea that states are laboratories for experimentation. And that's why we need things like a strong 10th Amendment bar on federal interference with what states do. But we know that historically what states' rights has meant has been protection of racist behavior. This might be a turning point where instead what we see is this sort of new federalism where states get ahead of the federal government instead of trying to hold the federal government back. I, like I said, 
I have some hope and some fear about whether that can happen in Nevada in the near term. But I think in the long term, a state like Colorado is kind of a bellwether for this sort of western part of the country. And it has been ahead of Nevada in terms of trends of people moving from California, but that's happening in Nevada. And so it may be that Colorado is going to lead some other states in that direction. And there is something to the idea that the Supreme Court and others notice when there's a trend in the states. Yeah. And I also, I would add that, you know, when you think about, when we, we could think about movements and lessons from movements, you look at the LGBT rights movement um, and there was a, 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 I think a real strategic decision to go a state route and remedy approach because of the hostility of the federal courts. And once there was sort of a tipping point of a number of, K, of states recognizing LGBT rights, including uh, same-sex marriage, there then it was sort of a, a, a buildup to the federal courts, you know, Windsor, and then next thing you know, Windsor was, I think, 12 states at the time uh, in recognized same-sex marriage in 2013. And by the time after Windsor was decided, then there was a federal push uh, because of that decision. And it was, th- I think, 37 states by the time the Supreme Court decided Obergefell versus Hodges. So you think it, it's also about being really strategic and in, in reading where the country is and thinking about those dynamics um, as a strategic matter, uh, but never stopping. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll round out with the last question. And this is to whoever wants to answer this. Uh, so Colorado has also now abolished qualified immunity as a defense for police and civil rights claims. And Congress is considering eliminating or restricting qualified immunity in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Could any of you share your thoughts on the importance of qualified immunity reform and potential progress in that direction? Uh, So uh, here's what I feel about qualified immunity. The police, uh, police officers really care about their potential liability in suits. And I have to admit that this has surprised me as over the years I've learned just how much they care about it because I teach in criminal procedure and in other courses that qualified immunity means the police really don't have to worry about uh, a civil litigant going into their pocket but police still worry a lot about it. And I think that's the reason why qualified immunity is so important. I I was having a conversation with a police officer who's a law student recently, and he was sort of saying about how, you know, he thinks on the street, ah, geez, you know, I kind of like to go in there or maybe I should act right now, but, you know, if I'm wrong, they're gonna come and take my house. And I was able to sort of tell him, You know, I'm glad that you have that thinking, but that's not actually how it works. In reality, qualified immunity means that most police officers are not going to be liable because the law has to have been clearly established in their jurisdiction and pretty much on all the particulars of the facts of their situation before the court will allow the civil litigant to go forward and get damages from them. And that clearly established rule has turned into almost an absolute liability, absolute uh, bar on liability. And therefore, this sort of quasi-absolute immunity is keeping us from reining in aggressive policing. And one other thing that I'd point out about that is that qualified immunity was 
sort of attached to civil rights suits by the Supreme Court. And it's the kind of the court's activism in this arena is what has created this. And so it may be that just as we were just discussing, we have to move away from hoping that the Supreme Court's going to see the light, as some people are right now, and start doing things at the state level like Colorado has. Thank you so much for explaining that to our audiences. And I think our hour is up. Uh, So thank you so much, Melina. I'll let you uh, close out this episode. Thank you all for joining us. And I've learned a lot in this recording. uh, And I'm sure that other listeners have as well. So thank you very much. Yes, it's it's truly a, a privilege to have each of you on here. Thank you so much for your expertise and your time. Thank you. 